Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're here with us, Lord Jesus, that you are in our midst. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the resident teacher of your church. And we lean heavy upon you, Holy Spirit, to bring forth truth and to help us, Lord, to take up the task you've given to us and to do it joyfully and excitedly. And so, Lord, be with me now. as Help, help me to make things very clear and plain today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's open up on our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Here we go, Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now, who are we talking about here in this this brief, vivid description. We have this, this snapshot of something going on in the heavenlies. So who are these folks that we're looking at? Do you see anything from the text that would give us some clues? They came out of tribulation. They came out of great tribulation. That comes down in verse 13 or 14. They come out of great tribulation. Now, of course, you have to just find out what that means. Many people assume that means the last seven years of earth history. I don't make that assumption. My personal opinion is that is the entire history of the church. That there is tr great tribulation that God's people have been going through for 2,000 years since Christ rose from the dead, and that he is redeeming a people from all parts of the earth and all times of the earth. They've many of them have been martyrs. Hundreds and or thousands and thousands from the first 300 years of the history of the church. And then there's martyrs today. Thousands of martyrs dying every year across the world because of their Christian faith. So regardless of what you believe this great tribulation to be, we, we believe it is the seven last years because it's become so popular to have this um, particular slant on Bible prophecy. But there are more than one way to look at the book of Revelation. So just to throw that out there, Whoever they are, they're coming out of great tribulation. And what else do we learn about them? They're in white robes. Okay, what would that mean? They're yes, they're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What else do they have in their hands? Okay, what would a palm branch represent? A what? A hand? What would it? Oh, okay, okay. Remember when they had palm branches and they, they put them down before Jesus when he came into Jerusalem? Do you remember? What were they shouting when he came across those palm branches into Jerusalem? Hosanna, what does that mean? Save now, we pray. That's what Hosanna means. They're, they knew that he was the Messiah and they're crying out to him to be the one that would save them. Hosanna, save us now, we pray. So the palm branches probably takes us back to that Jesus coming in as the recognized Messiah of his people, bringing salvation to them. So that's a little bit about who they are. Where are they?
Yeah, they're before the throne of God. So this is taking place in the heavens. So these people have entered the presence of God. They've died. They've come out of the Great Tribulation, probably many of these coming out as martyrs. Their blood has been shed to seal their, their own fate. They come into the presence of God. They're before the Lamb. They're before the throne. And then, what are they doing there besides waving these palm branches? What'd you say, Ange? They're crying, they're crying out. Exactly. And what are they saying as they cry out? Okay, what does that mean? God doesn't need to be saved. So it can't mean God's, well, I hope you get saved someday. <laughs> what does it mean, salvation to our God? Yes. Yes. They have come out of this tribulation, whatever that was. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb with white robes, meaning they're saved. And they're saying, they're ascribing this salvation to our God. They say, it didn't come from me. I didn't save myself, just like you said a minute ago. Jesus Christ the Lamb shed His blood to save my soul, and they're giving praise and glory to God who has saved them. My salvation must be ascribed to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, where did they come from particularly on the earth? Yeah, every nation, all tribes, all peoples, and all tongues. In other words, every people group from planet Earth has representatives there before the Lamb. God has a purpose and a plan to save some from every people group on this planet. Every tongue, which means every, every different language group, God is destined for some to glorify Him by saving them through the blood of Jesus Christ. What I, what I want to do is inspire you to see the big picture today. That there will be one day a multitude that nobody can count. I mean, when we get there, it is going to be so vast. Whoo, you know, as far as the eye can see, there are going to be multitudes and multitudes of redeemed people, millions of them, that Jesus Christ has saved. And we'll be there, and we'll be seeing people that we knew on the earth that were our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe people that we have helped to get there will be there. So this is God's plan, and it's going to happen. Nothing can stop this plan. And God has given us the unspeakable privilege of being part of this plan. He's given us the privilege of being His ambassadors while we live these 70, 80, 90 years while we're here, and to have our little part to play in seeing Jesus Christ be glorified forever by bringing the gospel to all the nations and peoples and tongues throughout the world. That's one of the reasons why we want to devote half of our income just to getting the gospel to unreached people groups around the world and supporting missions so we can be part of this plan even if we can't go personally we can help other people that can go there so that's that's the big picture from Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 7 and I wanted to share a dream with you that I had about four years ago we were attending another church and I could feel myself becoming frustrated. Our part to play was that we would go, we would sit down for an hour and a half, we would listen to a sermon, take communion, and go home. 
And I had this dream of these people coming into this particular church, sitting down for an hour and a half once a week, listening and going home, and thinking that they were really pleasing God by that act of attending a service. And in my spirit, I was thinking, no, no, no. How can we be so deceived to think that that's the Christian life? To, for an hour and a half a week to come and sit down in a chair and listen to somebody and think, this is it. Now I've arrived. This is the Christian life. And I thought, the Christian life is not to be an attender of a service, but it's to be part of an army of soldiers in the kingdom of Jesus Christ who are intent on advancing King Jesus' kingdom throughout this world. That's the Christian life. And he's called us to go into enemy territory and bring people out of it that are bound to Satan, bring them into the kingdom of Christ. So that's why I've entitled this message, An Army of Soldiers Advancing the Kingdom. I want you to get that picture in your mind. Do you remember Timothy? Let me read this to you from um, 2 Timothy. Chapter 2. He says in verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So Paul writes to Timothy, his young protege, and he says, You need to suffer hardship with me. I'm suffering hardship. I want you to suffer hardship with me as what? As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And this is how a good soldier of Christ Jesus lives. He doesn't get entangled in the affairs of everyday life. He doesn't get entangled in those things. Instead, he devotes himself completely to the work of the master, the general, so that he might please the one who enlisted him. Okay? We are also soldiers of Jesus Christ. Are we good soldiers or bad soldiers? Are we entangled in the affairs of everyday life? Or are we really trying to have, with one heart and one mind, are we intent on pleasing the one who enlisted us, bringing him glory by advancing his kingdom throughout the world so that Jesus is made more and more famous? So that more and more people worship Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain for their sin. So that's the question that I want to ask you. Now, this morning, I want to ask you something else. Have you ever heard of a church planting movement? That ring a bell with anybody? Okay. That's missiology talk, which means this is a phrase that is, that has come about through missionaries that have seen dramatic, rapid increases of disciples and churches in particular pockets of the world. They call these church planting movements. Let me read you a definition. A church planting movement is a rapid and multiplying increase of indigenous churches planting churches within a population segment. Does anybody know what that word indigenous means? Yeah, native born. You, you might say homegrown. It's native to that particular people group. So a church planting movement isn't missionaries from America coming over to a third world country and planting a few churches every year. That's not at all what it is. A church planting movement is people within that nation 
preaching the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches that in, that in turn plant other churches, that in turn plant other churches. And before you know what's happening, there is, it's spreading like wildfire. And the, the churches that they're planting are usually small. They usually meet in homes or outdoors in, a, in an outdoor area under a tree someplace, sometimes in factories. The, the, the thing, they're not building buildings because they're, they're using their resources to actually increase the kingdom. And this is happening in China, it's happening in India, it's happening in certain parts of Africa and certain parts of South America. We're not seeing it yet in North America, but there are many people that are seeking uh, to, to be used of God to spark a church planting movement here in America. You've got people in San Antonio, people in Austin, people in Columbia, I think it's North Carolina, um, Indianapolis, and uh, Tampa Bay, Florida. These are the people that I know of. I don't know anybody else in California that's, that's doing what they can to spark a church planting movement. But, oh, and also someone in um, Burger Holler, <laughs> North Carolina. He's kind of the ringleader of this. The, his name's Jeff Sandell. And uh, they're doing training amongst ordinary Christians and then training trainers throughout different pockets of Northern California to see if we could get a church planting movement started. I want to tell you a story about a fellow. I believe the area, it's an area in China. I think it's probably, um, he started off in Hong Kong. He ends up in another place of China. His name is Ying Kai. Has everybody, anybody heard of Ying Kai and his story? Well, he was a pastor prior to 2001 in Hong Kong. And he was actually a pretty good witness for Christ. He could bring about 40 to 60 people to Christ every year through his and his wife's efforts, just by witnessing everybody they met. They, they talked to everybody. And they could find about one person a week would end up giving their life to Christ, and they could plant one new church a year. So he did that for a few years, and he thought, well, I'm pretty successful. I don't know anybody else that's winning 50 people to Christ a year and starting a new church. But then he thought of the population of Hong Kong. It's 7 million people. And he thought, how many years is it going to take to reach this city? And it'll take forever at this rate. We're never going to get the job done, even if I can win 50 people to Christ a year. So that got him to, it drove him back to the Bible to see, is there another method that could be used to reach this entire population area, to, to saturate this whole area with the gospel, other than me trying to do it all? And what he came up with is something that he's called training for trainers, or T for T. So... What he did is he decided that he was going to start training as many Christians as he possibly could on how to win a person to Christ, how then to disciple that person to begin obeying Jesus, and then how to form these new disciples into new churches that would plant other churches. So he started in 2001. By 2011, are you ready for this? 157,000 churches had been started, and 1.7 million people had made professions of faith and gotten baptized. So, if he had stuck to his original plan, 50 people a year for 10 years, he'd have 500 people that had been baptized. This way, there's 1.7 million <laughs> with over 150,000 churches. It's the power of multiplication. There was an explosion of churches, starting churches, starting churches, until it just spread like a fire throughout that region in Asia. And this is what I want to give you an overview of today, because this is what I, I believe this is the missing link that I've been looking for for so many years. I knew that God wanted us as a church to be disciples making disciples. 
I knew that. In fact, that's been our vision for the last four years, right? We want to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. And we tried in various ways, but we weren't effective. We saw a couple people maybe make disciples, but it never, it never uh, caught on fire and became a movement of disciples making disciples who ended up with churches making churches. I, I believe that this model is so simple and so reproducible that it can work. In fact, it is working in various other parts of the world. And if you just go on Google and, and Google T for T, you're going to see that it's all over the United States. There are people all over the place that are, are starting to practice a simple method of making disciples who make disciples. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at an overview of it. And in fact, the last two Wednesday nights, we have be begun training in a disciple-making multiplication process. And we're going to continue that and if those of you who've come, you know that it's, it's not content-driven. That's the normal way that we do Bible studies in America. But we're not effective at making disciples in America either. If we make disciples, it's a very, very slow process. The, the growth rate, the birth rate in America is far outstripping the conversion rate. So if we want to saturate America with the gospel, it's not going to work doing it the old-fashioned way of having a pastor who preaches to the people and maybe 1% of the people actually ever go out there and tell people about Jesus, that isn't going to work. We need something different. And uh, I think this particular model of training people to train people to train people is going to be far more effective. Granted, <laughs> granted, the person making these disciples is going to have more of a simple method to follow, and he may not have as much information as we do, but if he's obedient, he'll learn. Just give him time. He'll be a self-feeder on the Word, and he's going to grow in grace, and over time, he's going to become a strong disciple. And if we had to measure somebody in terms of their maturity level, and you've got a, a one-year-old who's putting into practice everything he's learned about Jesus, and you've got a 30-year-old who doesn't share his faith and doesn't make disciples, who do you think is actually more useful and more fruitful in the kingdom? I'd, I'd put my hands down on this one-year-old disciple. He's been much more fruitful than the 35-year-old disciple. So, let's go ahead and get started. Oleg's prepared some slides that I think are going to be helpful, and I've got a pointer here to use. So, I want to talk about the four fields this morning, the four fields. And uh, before we get into it, I want to read a scripture from Luke chapter 8, where Jesus is giving a parable of this, this, the sower and the four different soils that he sows the seed upon. Luke chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus says, now the parable is this. The seed is what? The Word of God. So remember that as we go through these four fields, the seed is God's Word. What do you think the field would be then if the seed's the Word of God? The yeah, the world, the, the hearts of people that it's being sown into that live in this world. Um, so let's go put the first one up, Oleg. There we go. So notice in this diagram... You've got four fields, one, two, three, and four. It's actually the same field, but it's the same field as it changes over time. 
when you enter this field, okay, it's an empty field. It doesn't have anything in it yet. There are no seeds, there are no plants, there is no harvest yet. This is the entry plan. Okay? We, we enter a field that has no gospel witness in it. No one's sowing the word of God in this particular area. We could, we could say Winchester Apartments. Is that what the name of that is? Winchester Place. Maybe that was a place that was an empty field. There's no other Christians there sowing the gospel. So that's a good place to go. Folks, I've been around hundreds of our houses in my area, and it's not a good, it's not a good field. <laughs> it's hard. Uh, God needs to, sow, to dig it up and, and follow the ground because uh, it's like night and day trying to share here and trying to share where you guys live. You guys have good soil. We've got bad soil. So you, you discover a place, an empty field. That's the first field. Then this field starts to change over time. It becomes a seeded field. You start sowing gospel seed. And remember last week I told you that if you want to harvest, you don't plant one seed in acre 27 and one seed in acre 55 and then hope for a harvest. You take a handful of seed and you start casting it out there. And what we have to do is we have to sow lots of seed. Look at all the seed that's in this field here. We take a handful and we, we get the gospel out to, to lots and lots and lots of people. If we expect to harvest, we have to throw out lots of seed. So this is the entry plan. This is the gospel plan. We're sowing the gospel, planting the gospel in this, this field. So it changes from an empty field to a field that has all kinds of seed in it. Third field. Some of that seed starts to take root and grow. And so now we've got a growing field. You've got people that have come to Christ now. New believers. And you have to take, go from an entry plan to, for, to a gospel plan. Now you've got a discipleship plan. You need to know what to do to take these new Christians and make them into disciples. What did Jesus tell us to do in Matthew 28? After we've baptized somebody, what do we do with them? We teach them to what? Obey. We don't teach them to know. That's what we've done in America. We teach them all kinds of doctrine and content. And, and their heads are stuffed with information, but they're not applying it. Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. So that's the plan here. The discipleship plan, field three. Field four, we take all of these plants that are now grown up, and we harvest them, and we bundle them. See how it's bundled? And it becomes a church. This is the church formation plan. So let's just imagine what could happen. Let's say in Winchester Place, right? <laughs> Got that. First, it's an empty field. Now, Louis and I have started to sow some gospel seed. We're going to see if any of that grows. If God sovereignly causes it to take root and new believers come up out of the soil. If they do, it's our job now to disciple them. And Jesus said, the way you do it is teach them to obey whatever I've commanded you. So we're going to teach them the commands of Christ. What did Jesus command? Once, some of them are going to turn out to be false converts. They'll die off. They won't continue. But some of them will continue. The ones that continue will see, is it possible for us to bundle them and harvest them into a church? So this is where new church planting takes place. If you have people in a, in a general vicinity, um, maybe a, a whole household or various people from a relational network start to come to Christ, that's an indication that maybe it's possible in this place to start a new church.
And of course, then you have to um, look for who God can be raised up to oversee and to provide leadership for that particular new church plant. So here are the four fields. Empty field, seeded field, growing field, and harvest field. Now let's throw up the next one, Owen. This is the same thing. Oh, wait, let's go back to the other one for just a minute. I forgot something. We forgot to talk about this here. Leadership development and multiplication. This is what makes this whole thing go around. You're going to need leaders to enter a field, to seed a field, to grow a field, and to harvest a field. And where do you suppose we're going to get the leaders that are going to do all of this? Where does the seed for next year's crop come from? Yeah, the harvest of this year's crop. So we, I believe that the leaders are going to be raised up through the harvest of this process. You say, well, how can they be leaders if they just became a believer? Well, think about to the Apostle Paul's plan when he went on his missionary journeys. He would enter a city. Uh, when he went to the region of Galatia, he wasn't there very long. Maybe six to nine months. After he's there, he's raised up a church. He leaves. He goes to other cities. He raises up churches there. Then he goes back to the first cities. And he, Acts 14.23 says that he appointed elders in every city to which he had already been. So these six or nine month old believers now, some of them are being appointed as elders. They're being appointed as leaders. And you say, well, doesn't 1 Timothy 3 say that you can't be a new convert? It does, but 1 Timothy 3 is talking about an established church where there's already elders and there just need um, additional elders to be added along the way. We need to take our example from Titus chapter 1, which is a newly planted church that was having elders appointed for the first time, and there there's no requirement that you can't be a new convert. So we would look amongst the harvest to see, is there someone that God has put his hand upon, someone that has come up, They've been seated. They, they're growing now as a disciple. They're showing marks of maturity. They're taking seriously this work of, of the kingdom. And is there some people from the harvest that we can now say, okay, we want to give you some elder in training responsibilities to see how they do. Okay, now we can put up the next one over. Notice this is the exact same thing. Here we've got the leaders. But this one is split up into four words. Go, gospel, grow, and gather. Remember Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He didn't tell us to come, did he? He told us to go. In America, our philosophy is we put up a sign, everyone's welcome. And so people driving down the road, everyone's welcome. Okay, we hope that they will see the sign and they'll come to our church. Or they go online and find our, our website and they're drawn to come. So we sit in our churches and we wait for new people to come to us so we can preach the gospel to them. Jesus told us to go. Do you remember Luke 19.10? Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Did Jesus stay up in heaven waiting for us to come to him? <laughs> Or even when he got down here to the earth, did he put up a sign in front of the synagogue and say, come here, the Son of God preach to you? Jesus went throughout all the cities and towns and villages with the gospel, healing the sick, casting out demons, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus went. 
and he calls us to imitate his example. So that's what's going on here. Go. Now, what is our objective as we are going? What are we trying to do? Anybody know what HOP stands for? House of peace. A house of peace. What's a house of peace? <laughs> Let, let's read about a person of peace. Let's go over to Luke chapter 10 and just read it. Luke chapter 10. Um, Todd, would you read this in a, in a nice loud voice so that hopefully it'll get on our, our recording back there. Uh, Luke 10, 1 through 11. Luke 10, 1 through 11? Yeah. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets, and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, thank you very much. So Jesus is sending his disciples. Uh, he's, this is the 70. Some, some versions say 72. So these are 70 or 72 disciples he's sending out. And he's sending them into the very towns and villages that he's going to come later. They're to prepare the soil, to prepare that region for Jesus' coming. And the first thing he tells them to do in verse 2 is what? Look at verse 2 and tell me what, what they're supposed to do. Okay, in verse 3 we have go, but even before that in verse 2, what would you say, Justice? Okay, pray, pray earnestly or beseech. That's talking about prayer. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So they were going to go themselves, but they were to pray that God would raise up other laborers. So the first thing we do is we pray. That's what we need. One of the things we need to be doing here at the bridge right now is doing a lot of praying that God would raise up laborers. And guess what he does when you start to pray that God would raise up laborers? He raises up, he raises up you as a laborer. <laughs> you the to your yeah, a lot of times that's what happens. He'll raise you up. <laughs> and then verse 3, as Debbie said, they were to go. First they pray, then they go, and he gives them specific instructions. They're not to do certain things. They are to do other things. They're not to carry a money belt, a bag. They're not to carry shoes. They're not to greet anyone on the way. In other words, they're not to get distracted from this mission. They're to be intent on accomplishing the mission Jesus gave them, and they're to trust him to take care of all their provisions while they're going. 
And then in verse 5, they finally come to the village. And here are some instructions. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, if there's not a man of peace there, it will return to you. So you go there and you wish a blessing of peace on that household. But depending on how that person responds to you and to your message, they may reject you, they may kick you out, they may say, I don't want to listen to what you have to say. So your peace returns to you. But if a man of peace is there, it will rest on him. What does that tell us about the man of peace? What happens when you come into his home? Yeah, he provides for you. He receives you. He doesn't reject you. He receives you and your message. Now, he may not be a follower of Christ, but he is open to the message of Christ. He's willing to be taught by you. And over time, he becomes a Christian, and then he reaches into his relational network, his oikos. Oikos means household in Greek. And back then, an oikos consisted of servants, extended family, uh, original family. So it was really the relational network of a person. So... The person of peace then begins to introduce his oikos or his relational network into this message of the kingdom and more and more people come under the reign of Jesus Christ. So he says, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. In other words, concentrate on this man of peace. Stay with him. Invest in him. Disciple him. Teach him. Don't go flitting about from house to house. If you find a man of peace, stay with him. So that's what you're trying to do here in this first field. You're looking for a house of peace. You're looking for this person that will receive the gospel. They'll receive you. They're interested enough to hear more. Now, I don't think any of the people that we talked to yesterday were saved, but some of them might be persons of peace. We have to go back and find out if they're actually going to receive us on a long-term basis because they're really interested in hearing and following Jesus Christ. Um, okay, so who and where do we go in order to find this person of peace? Well, we start with our friends and family, our oikos. That's why on our first training day, we made a name list. We wrote down the names of everybody who is far from God that, uh, that we know about. Our friends or our family. Next after that, you can go to your work or school. You can also think about clubs or uh, hobbies where you're engaging different people and different interests that you have, who are people that are far from God within your relational network. Now, eventually you're going to run out of those people. You, you will have given them your story and Jesus' story, and, and they will either, they're, they're probably going to throw up a red light if they throw up a yellow light or a green light, you can continue with them. But if it's a red light, you have to move on looking for the person of peace. Eventually, you're going to exhaust your relational network. So what do you do then? You go to the community, which means you go to strangers, people that you don't know, that you don't have a relationship with. And this is really strange because you would figure that the people that you know, you would have way more success in trying to bring the gospel of the kingdom to. But I found it's been the opposite with me. <laughs> We found way more success just going up and knocking on a door of someone I, we don't know, explaining to them our story and Jesus' story, and asking if they would like us to come back and share more stories. Way more success than somebody that, that I've already known for a number of years.
Because problem, what, what's happened over a number of years is that I have shared some of those things with them, and I know that they're resistant and they're, they don't want to hear about the gospel of Christ. So we're looking in this first field, this go field, for a person of peace. So either you're going to meet with a red light, what do you do then? Just keep looking. Go to the next house. Don't, don't get a, a hurt feeling by the fact that they reject you. They're not even rejecting you. They're rejecting the message of Christ, not you. You're just his representative. So, okay, well, that wasn't a person of peace. Maybe the person of peace will be at the next house. You just go to the next house, knock on the door. If you get a yellow light, what do you do? Well, we're in field two. We're sowing the gospel. So what we're going to do here is share our story and Jesus' story. Now, for those of you who haven't been part of the training, what does it mean to share our story? Your testimony. Your testimony. And you want to be able to do this in two minutes or less because if you're on a stranger's doorstep, they don't want you talking to them for 20 minutes. They're going to get tired of you being there. So get it down where you can distill the essence of what God has done in your life in two minutes or less. Also, Jesus' story. That's the gospel. And I really didn't expect this, but I am really liking this bridge illustration. So now I carry a little notebook with me. And we, we, once we're done, well, let me just explain how this works here. Maybe, Louis, you want to explain how it works? What do we do when we knock on their door? What's the first thing we say? Yeah. I mean, we tell them we're doing what? We're prayer walking. No one's ever asked us what that means yet. <laughs> and then we say, yeah, can we pray for you, right? And then it, what happens next? What if they say, yeah, we need a job. We need more money. Did we do that yesterday? We prayed for a bunch of people yesterday. And what's, what that's doing is showing, number one, we're concerned about you and your, the needs in your life. We love you as another human being. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Number two, we're looking for a person of peace. So we're seeing if there's any spiritual interest among that person that we're on their doorstep. If they say, no, no, please don't come here anymore. We're not interested. Uh, we, we pray for ourselves. Goodbye. And they close the door. Okay, well, that wasn't a person of peace. We just go on to the next house. But if they say, yeah, I, I do have a need. Would you mind to pray for this? So we pray for them. Okay, so Louie, after we pray for them, What's the question we ask? How close they are to God. Yeah, are you near or far from God? Just curious. Are you near or far from God? Now, of course, they may give you the wrong answer. Most people think they're a lot closer to God than they really are. I mean, that household where they're living together and smoking dope, they thought that they were near to God. But if you're living in a pattern of sin, the Bible says that you're not uh, a regenerate person. Anyway... Most people, or I wouldn't say most, many people will tell you straight up, they'll be honest, and they'll say, no, I'm, I'm far from God. The very first house we went to, Marley, that's what she said. Yes, she said, I'm far from God. But she was attending a church anyway. She wants things to be different in her life. So if she says, yeah, even if they say I'm near to God or far from God, what's the next question, Louis? Yeah, and can I show you how? And so we whip out our notebook, and I say, can I take just a minute or two to show you how you can get near to God? And so we show the two cliffs. <laughs> We're on one side. There's a gulf, the Grand Canyon in the middle, and there's God on the other. And we show how far they are from God. And then we write out 
um, for the wages of sin is death on the left side. That's their condition. On the right side, the gift of God is eternal life. That's what you can have if you draw near to God. But it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you write the name Jesus Christ on the cross. You show them that the only way they can get from where they're at to God is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we write a, an arrow across it and we write two words. Repent and believe. And we explain to them what it means to repent. I just ask them, to, what do you think it means to repent? And they have sort of a fuzzy idea, usually. Isn't that kind of like apologizing or something like that? And we say, yeah, that's kind of like it. You're, you're on the right track. We try to help them understand that means to forsake a sinful lifestyle and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And you can tweak all of this yourself with your own stories and illustrations that God gives you. <laughs> You also, on that bridge illustration, can write out Romans 3.23. On the left side where you're at, for all have sinned. In the middle of the canyon, and come short, or fallen short. And the last section where God is, of the glory of God. And you can say, how do people try to cross this gulf from where they're at to God? Well, they do it through religion. They do it through trying to read their Bible and pray and give to charity. Well, do you think that's going to make it? You think they'll get to God that way? Well, no. Every single one of them falls short of the glory of God, no matter how hard they try. Well, what then can bridge you with God? Only Jesus Christ can do that. And what He's already done for you, and it's a gift, you've worked your whole life, the wages of all the sin that you produced is what? And you show at the bottom of this canyon, Louis likes to draw flames and Satan with a pitchfork down there. <laughs> Death! Eternal death. And I said, what, what does the Bible call that? And usually they know. It's hell. That's what's going to happen unless somehow you get from where you are to God. And the only way that that can happen is through the bridge of the cross of Jesus Christ that He's provided. So, I didn't expect to really like this particular way of sharing the gospel, but it is so simple. And, and it gives us a chance to draw it out and it draws people in because they like to see people drawing stories. And then they want you to come back and share more stories with them. So, so we go through the process and then we say something like, uh, does that make sense to you? And of course it does. And so they say, yeah, sure it makes sense. And then we can just ask them, well, is there anything that would keep you from drawing near to God based on what we've just told you? What would keep you from doing that? And that gets them to think about their own life. Yeah, wh why aren't I doing that? Wh what's keeping me from doing that? And then the next question, do you remember what it is, Lou? Yeah. So we only ask that one if the person says something like, um, yeah, I I'm close to God. So we want to find out, do they really, are they really close to God? What are they trusting in? So we'll say, I, if you died, stood before God today, and God were to ask you, why should I allow you into my heaven, what would you say? And of course, 95% don't have a clue what to say, or what they're, they're usually, they're trusting in themselves in one way or another. They believe they're a good person, and that God will let them in because of their good works. So you gently try to refocus them, well, no, 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 you don't want to trust in yourself. The way thereof is the way of death. You need to trust in the only perfect one who's ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're done doing that, we simply say, 
Would you like us to come back at some point and tell you some more stories so that you can learn how you can get close to God? And we can tell you stories of people in the Bible that were far from God that got close to God. And we haven't had anyone turn us down yet, I think, by the time we got to that point in talking to them. Did we? Did anybody say no? All six of them said, yeah, come back. We, have, we want to hear some more stories. So this is what we are doing in two. We're sowing the gospel. We're looking for responses to a man of peace. If it's a red light, we just go to the next house. If it's a yellow light, we want to start telling them stories of hope. And that's what we're going to come back on a different day. And we, right there, we get their name, address, phone number, and a date of when we could come back. And uh, we already have people, three people, that want us to come back Monday and talk to them. And then when we come back, we're going to tell them stories of hope. We're not going to teach them to obey the commands of Jesus yet because they're not yet a Christian. We're going to try to bring them to Christ. And what they need to do is they need to, they need simple, reproducible, understandable stories of people that in the life and ministry of Jesus received his forgiveness and eternal life. And so we'll tell them about the immoral woman. We'll tell them about the woman at the well, uh, Nicodemus or Zacchaeus or the thief on the cross. Or Jesus' story about the rich man, Lazarus. We'll just come back and tell him a story. And there's seven questions that we'll ask him from that story. I'm going to be training you guys on Wednesday night, so you don't have to remember all of these things. But I'm just trying to give you the overview. So we're going to tell him stories of hope. Over time, they will either say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. So what's the very first act of obedience we should expect from a new disciple? Okay, after repentance, what's the very first act we'd expect? Baptism. So we're going to ask them, are you ready then? If you want to follow Jesus, he wants you to be baptized. Are you, are you willing and desirous of being baptized to show that you're giving your allegiance now to him? You're identifying with Christ. And at that point, that's when baptisms will start. Once a baptism takes place, uh, we'll begin this process of discipleship, of teaching them how to obey Jesus. And uh, can we throw that, that slide up there, Oleg, where we show the commands of Christ? These are the ones that I've identified. Repentance and faith at the very beginning. Baptism, Scripture, Jesus said, continue in my word and then your disciples of mine. Teach them how to have a life of prayer, to make other disciples in the Great Commission. Jesus' command to love one another and also to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God above all. Uh, learning to give sacrificially partaking of the Lord's Supper. And then the, the last one would be, uh, if it looked, well, no matter what, the last one will be church life. Either they're going to be formed into a new house church, or they're going to be assimilated into an existing house church. Or some people may decide they don't want to be part of a house church and go to another church, and that's okay. Uh, it's better if we can be involved in the process so we know how they're doing but if they decide to go over to an existing traditional church, that's, that's fine. What we're really concerned about is that these people come to Christ and are saved. And we want to do everything we can to help them grow from that point on. Um, okay, so let's go back to the, the previous one, Oleg. So here we are in the grow process. Now notice that we've got ST and LT. ST means short-term discipleship. LT means long-term discipleship. 
In short-term discipleship, you're going to have about oh, two to three months where you're working with these new people, you're teaching them the commands of Christ, and you're holding them accountable every week to, to act on what you've taught them. We're not going to follow the typical way we do things in America by giving them lots of content and not expecting any obedience. We're going to come back and ask them, so what happened? We taught you about prayer. Did you pray this week? How did it go? And even as they say, no, we're just going to encourage them. Well, that's okay. You've got another week. You can do it. We're going to encourage them to, to follow through. So short-term discipleship, the commands of Christ. Once we have taught them the basic commands of Christ, they're going to come into long-term discipleship, which is where we teach them to feed themselves on God's Word. So we start a discovery Bible study where we go through a book like Mark or Acts or Ephesians, and we take a short section each week. We read it. We ask certain questions of the text, like, I'll just give you an example. What did you like from this passage? What bothered you from this passage? Um, what does it teach you about God or Jesus? What does it teach you about man? Um, are there any sins in this passage that we need to avoid? Are there any commands that we need to obey? What are you going to do this week to put this passage into practice in your life? And who is there that you know that you can tell this story to? So questions like that. Okay? So simple that anybody can do it. Anybody in this room, I believe, except maybe Sarai, <laughs> could do this. Could lead this kind of a Bible study and see life change take place amongst new Christians. So that's long-term discipleship. That would go on for at least nine months where you're helping these new disciples get a good, healthy start. Uh, notice here, T for T, three-thirds three format. Three-thirds format. Can we put the slide up about three-thirds, Olin? Okay. This is the three-thirds training meeting format. And we've been doing this the last two weeks. There's three-thirds. Looking back, looking up, looking forward. So the first part of the meeting, we're looking back. How did it go last week? Did you obey Jesus last week or not? So we're asking accountability questions. We're also doing some member care. How was your week? How are you doing? Give me a highlight and a challenge in bullet form. We're doing some worship. And we're trying to cast a little bit of vision so that people don't get discouraged and give up by obeying the commands to make disciples. Okay, so that's looking back. Looking up, there's a new lesson but only enough biblical content for them to obey and pass it on. If we overload them with content, they'll get stuck. So we want to keep the lesson fairly brief. About one-third of the whole time comes into a new lesson. Um, if we have interested seekers, the new lesson is going to be the seven stories of hope. I've also, um, I've also put together an eight-week discovery Bible study in the book of John that could be an alternate to the seven stories of hope. If people are good readers, you might want to go with this one. If they're slow to read or if their English is their second language, you probably just want to tell them these stories. But you're going to accomplish the same thing, introducing them to Jesus Christ. If they're disciples, you go through the nine commands of Christ and then the long-term discipleship of um, in, an inductive Bible study where they're learning to feed themselves from God's Word. That's looking up. Looking forward, you take time now to practice what you just learned. So does this make sense? You folks that have been here the last two Wednesday nights, every week we're practicing what we're learning. We learned how to give our story. We wrote it out. 
And then we took a few minutes to, to get to pair up in twos and actually share with one another our story. We're practicing it. Every week that you share a story of hope, you'll ask them, well, can you just retell me that same story that I told you? Because there's someone in your life that you need to tell that story to this week. So even before they're saved, we're teaching and training them to pass on to other people what they're learning from the Scripture. So practice and then set goals and pray. So we're asking people at the end of our training session to take a moment of silence, ask God, Lord, what, what goal should I have this week? How many people should I try to talk to? What would be a, a goal? And show me who, who it is, where I should go in order to uh, spread the gospel. So that's the three-thirds training meeting process. Okay, let's go back here to the four fields. Go, gospel, grow. The last one is gather. So once you've got a group of disciples that are growing in Christ, you need to ask yourself, does God want this group to become a church? Or does he want them to assimilate into other churches? If you, if you believe that this would be a good place to, to plant a new house church, then they need to learn to identify themselves as a church and they need to covenant with each other that yes, we are the church and we're going to live out our life as a church. So you take them through a study of Acts chapter 2, 37 to 47. And in that passage, you're going to find nine different functions of a church. What does a church do? A church baptizes. It continues in the Word. It takes the Lord's Supper. There's fellowship. There's sacrificial giving going on. A church prays together. It worships together. It makes disciples together. And it has caring leaders. And there's a tenth that I would add that they haven't added. And that is it practices church discipline. So I would go to Matthew 18 and add that into the piece to show them what does a church do? And are you disciples, are you ready to commit together to become an Acts chapter 2 kind of a church where you're committed to each other and committed to living out these functions of a biblical church. There's the harvest taking place. And people from this church then are going to be funneled back into here to new fields where they will sow the gospel, will they see new disciples grow up, and will they see new churches formed. So in this model of discipleship multiplication, every disciple is expected to reproduce. It's not the pastor reproducing, we watch him do it. <laughs> it's every Christian now has the DNA because the Spirit lives in them to be able to reproduce that same life should God sovereignly accompany their efforts and bring new life, new growth, new churches. Um, and then here, guide, reproducing leadership. So we're always on the lookout for those people who are are sowing seed. They're actually doing it. They're prayer walking. They're talking to people. They're giving them their story and Jesus' story. And then they take on the responsibility of helping these people grow. See, so I would look for people that are actually forming groups and helping new disciples grow into maturity. That's where I would look for the potential new leaders. If someone's not even doing this or this, there's no way they can be a leader. But if they're pastoring, caring for new disciples here and helping them grow in maturity, you may just have a pastor there. You may have an elder. They just need to be identified and helped to form the skills and the character necessary to be able to do that as, a, as an elder of a church over here. Um, any questions or, that you have about 
about what I've tried to teach you this morning? Debbie? What we determine a short term from a long term. Do you start with a short yeah. term and then if it seems like you should keep going, then you go into a long term? Exactly. Exactly. If they, if they go through the commands of Christ and you've taught them that, and you see, you don't really want to go on to a new command until they're obeying the first one. Or at least until the majority of the people in that group are obeying. Because then you're not accomplishing anything. You're just giving them knowledge that they're not applying and they're going to be held accountable on Judgment Day for all that knowledge that they never put into practice. So you're looking for obedience. So if the first lesson was repent and believe, and you come back and say, well, how many of you have repented of your sins and are trusting in Jesus Christ and nobody's done it? We say, okay, well, next week is going to be the same lesson again. <laughs> and you might tell them a story of hope because maybe they haven't become disciples. Let's say the lesson is on prayer. You come back and say, well, how'd you do? Nobody's praying. Well, then we stay on that lesson. They graduate when they're obeying the commands of Jesus in one form, fashion, or another. And then you can take them on to long-term where they learn to feed themselves from God's Word. So they're not dependent on upon a, a pastor's sermon every week to feed them. They're going to the Word every day. And they're reading the Bible and God is feeding them because they're learning to ask these simple questions of the text. Does that make sense? Okay. So this one is the way you start, then this is how you continue. Anybody else have a question? So I just want to challenge and hopefully inspire you that you can do this. God can use you in the harvest. When you get to heaven, you can find people that are there because God used you. He used you to sow the seed. He used you to invest your life in them, to train them. He used you in the process of forming them into a church. Simple Christians, ordinary Christians, non-seminary trained Christians can do this. Young people, 17 and 20 years old, is that, did I get that right? Or 19? <laughs> can do this. You guys can do this. If you know Christ. So I want to encourage you to do that. I mean... If after we've seen, yeah, it's possible, I can see how God could use me, and we say, but I, I'm just not going to do that. What we're really saying to Jesus is, I'm not going to obey you. You've told me what to do in the Bible. It's, it's very clear. Go and make disciples. But I'm not going to do it. And Jesus said when he was on the earth, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And he's still asking the same question. Why do we call him our Lord if we're not going to obey him? This is obedience. And so I, I want to call you to put this into practice in your life. Come on Wednesday night. Make Wednesday night a priority. I'm starting to see Wednesday night as maybe as important as Sunday morning now. I mean, because it's going to make the difference between people being saved or not. Um, or if God uses us in bringing people to Christ or not.